Hi, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of The Veterinary Optimist. I'm your host, Jennifer Evans, and I'm really excited today for our conversation because I'm with not only a legend in my specific area, but a doctor who's known all around the world. Dr. Gary Norsworthy has been in private practice for 50 years, including 25-only feline, <clears throat> uh, feline-only practice. He is the owner of Alamo Feline Health Center in San Antonio. In addition to practice, he has lectured frequently on feline diseases, is the editor and major author of seven textbooks. He is a board-certified feline specialist, one of only two in South Texas, and an adjunct professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine, Mississippi State University, and Western University of Health Science. He received a 2020 Distinguished Career Achievement Award by the Texas Veterinary Medical Association. He has hosted over 100 students from the U.S. veterinary schools across North America and from other countries. He and his wife, Linda, have been married for 54 years, and they have two children, four grandchildren, and live with two cats. I can tell Dr. Norsworthy that you're a cat person right off the bat because your bio says that I live with two cats, not that I have two cats. Right. So I love that. And welcome today. I, I want to start, one, by saying thank you. And two, I want to just take a second to recognize that you're definitely a very admired man in this area. And I don't know if it's because you're such a cat person, but but I think so many of us wonder so much about you because you you seem more quiet. You're definitely a little bit more of an internal thinker. And I love that we're getting this opportunity to hear more about your path up until this point. And so. So thank you very much and welcome. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure wow. to talk with you. Any pleasure to talk with anyone about cats. Yes, that's I love that. And that kind of doc takes me right into my first question of I had no idea that you did mixed animal or small animal before you were feline only. And you practiced for 23, 25 years as um, small animal. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey, about that first portion of? Sure. Okay. So when I went to vet school, <clears throat> I had worked for a veterinarian the summer after my sophomore year. And it was a job. I really had no connection with veterinary medicine. My family had occasional pets, but I don't think we had ever used the services of a veterinarian. So I took this job just to have a summer job, and it was like, this is fits. Um, I was strong in math. I was strong in science. And everything I saw that summer appealed to me, including the cats. And I just liked cats. So when I went to vet school, I was basically told my classmates and my professors, um, I want to do nothing but cats when I graduate. Now, that was 1968. You told them this in 1968? Yes. While you were still in school? Yes. Okay. And, okay. And I was a marked man. Okay. Okay. I and, bet. In fact, when I got to my last year, the head of large animal, Dr. Romaine, when he found out about me and my interest, he said, who let that guy in here? We could be graduating a real veterinarian in his place. That's how how uh, distinguished it was to be a cat doctor in those days. So I looked for a job in a cat-only practice. Obviously, that's what would fit me. And there were only two in the country. 
I was just about to ask you that. How many could you have chose from in 1960? When did you, do you mind me asking, what year did you graduate? 1972. Uh, 1972, okay. Yeah, I can't imagine how many cat practices there would have been in 1972. There was one in Southern California that was not hiring, and there was one in Seattle that was. So I contacted them, and they said, sure, come up for an interview. So I did. And when I got there, um, it was a nice little cat practice. But before I left town, they were like, okay, we need you to sign a contract. And it was like, well, what's the rush? Well, what the rush was, was they were afraid they'd never get another applicant because nobody wanted to work in a cat practice. Wow. Okay. So I said, okay, I'll come. So my wife and I packed up and the day after I graduated, we got on the road and moved to Seattle. Of course, our parents thought we were moving to a foreign country and they'd never see us again. Uh, so there was that aspect of the whole situation. But I had two really good years. I had a mentor there who was exceptional. He and I are still friends. And he said right off the bat, there's a lot of things we don't know about cats. And so we are going to always keep our eyes and ears open, looking for new and better ways to do things and looking for diseases that are undiscovered. And there's lots of them. And he was very right. The feline leukemia virus was not discovered, at least by practitioners at that era. It had been actually reported in Nature, which is a very high-level um, scientific journal, right. where they showed that this virus could cause cancer. And so consequently, but that didn't filter down to the practitioner. And there was a test that was the first test to find the virus was 1973. And I got there in 1972, the latter part of it. So we saw this advertisement in the journal and it was like, well, that's interesting. Let's see what this is about. So we called and talked to Dr. Bill Hardy, who was the one who developed the test. And he gave us all sorts of information about what the leukemia virus could do to cats. You know, we saw lots of cats that were anemic, lots of cats with lymphoma, lots of ictric cats, lots of cats with all these classic manifestations of the leukemia virus, but nobody put it together until we started testing. And then we realized, wow, this is really a common problem. I mean, like epidemic level. Wow. So you being a, do you being a doctor, highly interested in, in felines, finds this practice, you and your wife move up there, and then within six to eight months of you being there, you come across a potential brand new disease that has a massive effect on cats that you're currently seeing. And as a doctor who has just graduated and is excited with all this growth, were you just like, I hate to say the word, but were you excited about this discovery and about the potential of learning more about this in real time? I was like a kid in a candy I store. I can only imagine. Yes, it was great. Oh my gosh. Um, <clears throat> in fact, one of the frustrations that I quickly keyed in on was that people didn't really have much use for cats, veterinarians. I mean, they were just a species that came along with the package. You know, you treated dogs, you loved dogs, 
and then there was the cats that came in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> the cat didn't get much attention. It got very little attention in school. Um, there was almost no research done on feline diseases until the leukemia virus. Now that was significant because the leukemia virus had the potential, at least we thought, that it might affect people. Therefore, that got the research dollars. And so the government poured lots of dollars into understanding and investigating the concept of could the feline leukemia virus cause leukemia in people? Mm. Obviously it didn't, fortunately. Right. Right. But that is what woke everybody up to the cat as a real species. And I've, I've said many times, I think the feline leukemia virus was the best thing that happened to the cat. Stop it. What an incredible story. I had no, I, I mean, I guess I, I mean, I guess we realize that disease kind of is discovered and starts somewhere. But for you to be on the ground level of that and get to experience it that, and to hear your take on it as it being something that changed the trajectory of that common household cat. I mean, that is, that's amazing. It was, it was amazing. And I, 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 uh, I mean, I was just a kid right out of school, two years, three years out of school. And it frustrated me because I would lecture on this disease and everybody was like, what are you talking about? And there was this, well, where's the references? There was no article in the veterinary literature about the feline leukemia virus. I wrote the first articles about the feline leukemia virus. And there was, it was actually a four article series where we talked about the virus and we talked about the neoplastic diseases and we talked about the non neoplastic diseases and, and people read these articles and they were like, wow, this makes sense because we see all of this stuff. We just didn't put it together. Dr. Northworthy, I've been following you for, I've been in this area for 12 plus years. I have been following you for this entire time. I've been close to your practice for probably the last year and a half. And I am like, I'm just now realizing this massive effect that you had on this profession that I love so much. And I didn't know that it went that deep. I'm so grateful that you in that moment decided to go against what everybody was telling you every I bet every single veterinarian that you ran into every single professor every single person told you that you were crazy for wanting to be a cat doctor and then here you are 48 years later making some of the most massive moves in vet medicine for these animals that we love so much that's incredible I I'm I'm kind of shocked right now. And I, and I, I feel like I've done a lot of research on you and I just had no idea. And that was your first couple of years in, in vet med, huh? Yeah. I bet that just solidified the fact that you were never going to be anything but a cat doctor. I was a cat doctor all the way, but my, my career changed because I got a call from a class, not a classmate. He was a couple of years ahead of me and he had just opened a practice in San Antonio and it was a dog and cat practice. And he wanted me to come and join him in practice. And uh, so I really didn't have a, what I could see as a path to ownership. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any money. I mean, I was as poor as most of my classmates. 
And so this was a potential ownership situation. Okay. So I said, okay, I've been here two years. I'd love to stay longer, but I also going to take a chance and make this happen. So we moved to San Antonio, 1974. And it was a dog and cat practice. It was just getting started. He really couldn't afford to hire an associate, but we made it work. And uh, I mean, we really were financially strapped. Um, when I left Seattle, I was making an amazing $950 a month. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Everybody says, wow. wow. Well, my first few months here, I was making $600 a month. That was about $3 and 50 cents an hour. <laughs> so it's like I went to college for seven years. I have a doctorate degree and now I'm making $3 and 50 cents an hour. And you've written papers on groundbreaking diseases for cats in your three years into your career. Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. I would, and I just said, I've got something I need to share with the profession. And so, you know, my partner and I, you know, we just buckled down and said, we're going to do this. And sure enough, the practice grew and the income went up and it was a great 25 years, but it was dog and cat. Now I was always sort of the cat guy of the practice, but we lived out here on the edge of town, which is close to where we are now, but it was really the edge of town. And so we saw lots of dogs and lots of big dogs. And so my ability to work with cats diminished quite a bit mm. until over time the word got out. There's, there's somebody in town that actually likes cats. And so the feline part of our practice grew. And, and then my partner decided after 25 years, he was ready to retire. So we decided we're going to sell the dog and cat practice. <clears throat> and I bought a building literally across the freeway from that building. Okay. And this was a building that was a veterinary practice, but the owner retired and he basically was closed the practice. And so I bought the building as a piece of real estate and renovated the whole thing and turned it into a cat practice. And that was March of 2000. And so I've been in cat only practice now for 23 years on this end of the spectrum, two years on the front end of the spectrum with 25 years in the middle dog and cat. Wow. So the practice that's right across the street from yours now, is that the same one mm -hmm. that you? Yep. So the same guy owns it that we sold it to. Wow. Okay. So let me ask you this. In the moment that you decided that, you were going to officially take less money for the amount of time that you did. Could you tell, did you know deep inside that you were doing it for all the right reasons and that that would come back to you? Sometimes I think so many people are so afraid to take a lateral step. Mm -hmm. If it means they're going to get more growth, I think people are so afraid to take that lateral step. Well, not only did you not take a lateral step, but you kind of took a step back. I did. Did you ever feel like that was the wrong decision or, or was that something that you knew deep inside was going to pay off at some point? Yeah, I did have some second thoughts uh, two or three years into it. It was like, where is this going? And so we had a, one of our notorious heart to heart talks one evening and, and really decided 
here's what we want out of this practice and here's what it's going to take to get us there. And we marched forward. I'd, I'd, I had an offer from Texas A&M to go and work in the clinics there as mm. their cat guy because mm. there were no other cat guys around. And after looking at that situation, uh, I think the main thing that I saw there was that there really was no big future. You know, you could work there the rest of your career. You'd never make much of a living. Right. What's the next step? Where's the and, growth at? And I would be limited on what I could do because I had to work within the system. Mm. So I was a little cog in a big wheel and that just didn't jive for me. So I said, not going to do that. We're going to make this dog and cat practice. Work. Yeah, there's no way you can get like the taste of writing papers on groundbreaking diseases. And and have the ability to like dig into that and research into that and to go back into a spot. Not that A&M is not an incredible place and they do not. I mean, they clearly pump out some of the most beautiful doctors I've ever met in my entire life. Just extremely talented people. But you would be kind of restricted in that mm -hmm. sense. That yeah. was that was a smart move. Yeah. Wow. I didn't. It, so that's where you practice for 20. Are you still friends with that doctor now? Oh, yeah. Talk to him once a month. OK, we're good friends. That's awesome. Okay, so now we're at the point where you have opened your new practice in in across the street, and that's the Alamo Feline Practice. I'm going to ask one quick question based around this. The birdhouse that's in the lobby, can you tell me just a quick story? If anybody, <laughs> I'll have to like put a picture where someone can see it, but the birdhouse in the lobby, I'm just curious. Is that like, is that a gift from a client or? No, I was very interested in antiques. Oh, okay. And we went to this auction. Uh, very often uh, and bought antique furniture for our house. And this stuff came up and it's actually uh, it's mahogany and it's reproduction antiques. And so most of the pieces in my wedding room I bought at that auction that night. And then this birdhouse came up and it was like, well, that's sort of novel. And so I bought it. Mm -hmm. And for a long time we had this, pillow that was sitting in the bottom of the mm -hmm. and there was a a white porcelain cat that was curled up like he was asleep laid on the pillow inside the birdhouse and then we scattered some feathers around and it was like it was a joke you know it was like the cat got in the cage the and, got cage the bird, and yeah. ate the bird yep so anyway <laughs> it's a it's a discussion piece. I like it. Absolutely is. I ask about it every time I walk in. I'm like, I cannot wait to ask Dr. Norsworthy about that. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful piece of. It um, is. It's a nice piece of furniture, but it it just seemed like we. It was a humorous. Mm. Uh, it's like we're not taking ourselves too seriously here. Look Which is good because sometimes when you have cat owners, and I love my cat owners, but sometimes when you have cat owners, they can take themselves. Oh yes. Very seriously. Oh, so yes. Well, I love that we're on the subject about your lobby because there's something in your lobby that stands out to me. You've got a poster in there with over, I don't know, it's got to be like 50 or some something students on that poster. Can you help me understand what those what that <clears throat> represents? Okay, so I have an externship program. Now, the students in their last year of school have the opportunity to go to an externship which is defined by the school as either two weeks, three weeks or four weeks. And you go into the field and you work in a, a practice and just to see what practice is like in the trenches. 
so I had several students that called me and I had originally I have an apartment up excuse me upstairs in my practice okay and originally I had a lady living there who was who worked at night and would take care of things and then she moved out and it was like I've had a few students along the way but this could be a great way to increase my student contact students go to these externships and most of them have to pay their own way they have to live in a hotel unless somebody in the practice invites them to live in their home and so mm -hmm. now I've got an apartment they can stay doesn't they don't charge them anything and so with that coupled with the fact that I'm cat only uh, my externship program started catching on and students would go back to their school and they most of them had a book where they would write their experiences with their externships and this was for the benefit of the class behind them so then the class behind them would come along and they'd read about this and it was like oh that's interesting i think i'll do that and so the first thing i know i had a line of people you know wanting to come and uh and i i made a trip to brazil to lecture in a meeting and the next thing I know, I've got all these Brazilians that want to come and spend six weeks here. And I remember the first one that came was a delightful young lady. And she stayed six weeks. No, she stayed 12 weeks. Mm. And it was a great experience for her as well as for me. Uh, it was I, she was just a very wonderful person. And so then she goes back and the word gets around Brazil there's opportunity for an externship. So now I have all these Brazilians that are here. I have one that works for me now who came as an extern about six months ago. She graduated and she wanted to be in a cat practice and she wanted to do it in the US. And that's a big problem because of getting a license. Uh, if you don't go to a US school, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you've got all sorts of hoops to jump through to get a license. So she is a technician now working for me with the long term goal of becoming a licensed practitioner. And so my externship program just sort of snowballed. <clears throat> it gives me an opportunity to um, meet some nice uh, young people. I, I get to understand what they're being taught in school firsthand. You know, what do they tell you about this? What do they tell you about that? Um, and they come without realizing that they're in for uh, a four week job interview. And after about the first day or two, I've generally got them sized up pretty good. Mm -hmm. Would this make a good employee or not? And so most of my new associates through the years have been students who be, who became here for an externship, graduated, and then I hired them. And that has given me a, a, a source for new employees. So my externship program has really been a benefit in a lot of ways to me as well as to the students. Right. And, and being able to learn on both ways, right? Like them learning from you. There's no better person to learn from in the cat world, in my opinion. And then you learning from them. You know, I think sometimes in, in life in general and definitely with management and veterinary hospitals, I think there's a lot of generational misunderstandings and the fact that you're open to that 
with the younger crowd that that makes you a much more progressive manager owner than most because it's easy to write off the fact that I don't get them because they're younger or I don't get them because of these differences. Yeah. Um, you keep yourself open to that. And I think that's a huge thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I enjoy working with young people because they're enthusiastic and, you know, they haven't been beat down by the realities of life and they're here ready to go. And frankly, I like working with those people more than my generation because my generation's either retired or dead. Oh. My classmates, most of them are. I'm very few of us are still practicing. Well, I, that class. I know, and you know, and I, 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 I had the pleasure of my previous job of going around to a bunch of different animal hospitals, and there are very few that are in your range um, in this area. But I will say the ones that I know are are gems. That's for sure. Gung ho, yeah. So, we're still chugging away. So if we're at this point now where you've been, and I love so just to just to make sure we brought that back full circle, that poster in your lobby our faces of all of these people that you've brought in yeah. and, uh, and the fact that you display it with pride, I'm sure goes both ways on how, what that makes them feel like their contribution was with you. And then, yeah. and what that was for your practice. And, and so I, I really just have a strong appreciation for that, that poster in there up until this point, what would you say had been your biggest mm -hmm. challenge throughout your career? What's been your biggest challenge throughout your entire career? The fact that the cat is basically the stepchild of veterinary medicine. Mm. Um, people look down on the cat as just a, a, a nuisance that they have to put up with in their practice. Uh, they don't really cater to cats and cat owners who in themselves are a different breed. We love them. And, uh, and you cat owners are an acquired taste, let's say. We, we love them. <laughs> we love them, but it took us several years to get there. <laughs> but I love my in fact, that's really one of the main reasons I love staying in practice is because of the people. You know, I like the cats, but I like my cat owners. And so many of them I consider my friends. They've been coming to me for years, decades. Their, their kids and grandkids come to me. You know, it's um, there's a link there that is a big part of what keeps me going. Mm. So you think the biggest challenge has been... The way that people view this animal that you yeah. hold so tight oh, yeah. and so high. All right. Okay, now let me tell you one other thing that I believe. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, after I did my seventh textbook, I said, I'm done with writing. Except I have, in the back of my mind, been writing this practice management book for years. Here's how you develop a very successful feline and canine feline practice. And so I've got about 70 pages written. <laughs> and the first thing right off the bat, I, uh, I said, the first thing you need to understand about how to develop a successful practice is that your main job, believe it or not, is not to get cats well. It's to make, make cat owners happy. And if you make cat owners happy, they'll keep coming to see you for decades. And making cat owners happy doesn't always mean that the cat got well. Because I got a card just the other day. It was a euthanasia scenario. And the cat I'd been treating for years. And it came to the end. And she handed me this card. 
and um, and said, I want you to read this after we're gone. And it was like, thank you for the care you've given my cat for all these years. And, you know, here I am euthanizing the cat and the people love me. And they're thanking you. And thanking me. You have other scenarios where I may do amazing piece of surgery and do something that saves the cat's life. And they didn't like the way the technicians talked to them. They didn't like the way the receptionist talked to them. The, the cat didn't immediately get better. You know, they, they, there's a thousand things they can complain about. The cat gets well, but the owner's unhappy. Mm. That's not mm -hmm. the way you build a practice. Mm -mm. You build a practice by making mm -hmm. cat owners happy. Mm -hmm. And the guy that I worked for when I was in college, he sort of had the same theme. And he said, you'll never have a cat hand you a credit card or write you a check. You certainly will not. It's always the owner that has to be happy. And so I've, I've preached this sermon to, to my new employees for a long time. So my wife got uh, a, a CD set of James Harriet. I never even watched those, you know. I should have, I guess. But in the very, one of the very first ones, this young veterinarian goes to work for James Harriet. And James Harriet says, this profession is not about animals. Mm -hmm. It's about people. It is so about people. And, and it was like... And half the time, Dr. Norsworthy, we don't have the communication skills because we're so drawn to the animals. Yep. It's easy for us to communicate with the animals. But to have the communication skills to, to, to be able to communicate with these owners is one of the biggest things. I'll tell you this quick story, and I know that I've told it on this, and I'm sorry I'm going to tell it again. But I had part of going out to these clinics, I get to ask doctors great questions. And one of mine was, if you were to give three pieces of advice to a graduating vet, a gentleman, doctor, I would say a little bit younger than you, not much, but in the same age range, looked at me and he said, Jennifer, I'm going to tell you this story. He said, I was told this by a teacher of mine in the middle of a field dealing with a cow. He said, no matter what, the, the baby vets are going to pass because 80% of the animals probably would have gotten better on their own somehow, right? right. Whether it yes. was sped up or done well or whatever, but... 10% you're actually going to help and 10% aren't, aren't going to make it at all. Right. So no matter what they're, they're graduating with a B, no matter what they're going to do, have at least a B in life. What it comes down to is how you treat the people. Yep. And that's what he told me. And I, and it, that was such a massive story for me that I've told it multiple times. I've maybe even told it on this podcast before, because I think it speaks so loudly to how we should view what we're doing. Yes. We love these animals. Yes. We, we have such a passion for the medicine side of it, but if we are not paying attention to how we're treating these owners, then we are not going to be successful. And I, and I just truly believe that. Yeah. So it really is a people service. Mm -hmm. It really is. I agree with you. And it's easy for us to get into it because we love the animals, but we have to work on the mm -hmm. muscle of dealing with clients. I had a employee a number of years ago who uh, her goal was to go to vet school and she had a bumper sticker on her truck that said, I want to be a veterinarian because I love animals and hate people. <gasps> and it was like, okay, your career's over. Yeah. That's not going to get you anywhere. No, that's not going to get you anywhere. So, well, I love, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I, I, it's taken a couple of extra steps that I, that I didn't know we were going to take, but I've really loved it so much. So 
Okay, if we're talking at the point where we've talked about your biggest struggle, what do you feel like your best accomplishment is? Like the thing you're most proud of in the last 48 years? Well, on the medicine side, it's small intestinal disease. I, uh, I wrote a paper uh, with, the, with assistance of several others on chronic small bowel disease in the cat. Mm -hmm. And there's two of them that account for most of it, and that's inflammatory bowel disease and GI lymphoma. And both of them cause chronic vomiting. Well, everybody that's had more than one cat has had a cat that vomits. Everyone. And so the word on the street is the cats vomit. That's normal. And we've made several excuses for him. We say, okay, well, he vomits because he eats too fast. Or he vomits because he has a sensitive stomach, whatever that is. Or he vomits because he's swallowing hair and it's hairballs and that's normal. And as one lady told me, quote, he's just a puker. There are some cats that are just programmed to vomit. Well, the reality is that is not true. If a cat vomits two times a month or more, it needs to be investigated. And most of those cats, like 96% of them, have either inflammatory bowel disease or GI lymphoma. And so we wrote this paper on 100 cases. And there was a lot of skepticism. It's like, okay, this is interesting. And then the way the game is played is that if you discover something, everybody looks at it and says, okay, but let's see that confirmed with another study. Well, I was pretty sure that there wasn't going to be anybody with enough cases to confirm what we had done. So we said, okay, let's do a second paper. Instead of 100 cases, let's do 300 cases. And so we looked at 300 cats, exactly the same results as the first paper. And so we published that one. This is in the ABMA journal. And again, there's, there's this pushback that, is this really true? Well, yes, it is really true. I mean, we, we, uh, we diagnose these with surgery as opposed to endoscopy. And we get full thickness biopsies of the bowel in at least three places. And we look at the whole intestine. So we're taking the biopsies at the right place. And you can't do these things with an endoscope. Mm -mm. But, I mean, we do this uh, an average this year from January 1st to the end of June. We took 82 cats to surgery for chronic small bowel disease. It's mm -hmm. a huge part of our practice. And these are both very treatable diseases. They're not curable, but they're treatable. And we don't make cats live forever, but we give most of them several extra years of life. And, and so many people are just still skeptical that you really need to do this, that vomiting is really that big a deal. And so I'm still fighting an uphill battle on this. In fact, one of my associates and I the other day was saying, why don't we do another paper with a thousand cases, which we could easily do. It's like the allergy of the dog world. It's like the allergy of the cat world. Like that's how many are affected. There's so many allergies in dogs yeah. that it's kind of the, and you're right. I mean, I, I hate to say this out loud, but I'm going to say it out loud. I, 
was, I am a very knowledgeable technician. I've done it for many, many years. And I can think of many times where I'm like, well, you know, sometimes cats just, cats just vomit. They're just pukers. Wow. Yeah, it, they're not. They're, I mean, and, I, and I've said to several clients who said, well, you know, they vomit. that's okay. That's what cats do. I said, well, let me ask you this. If your child vomited twice a month or more and you ignored it, what would Child Protective Services say to you? Mm, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, that's a that's a huge accomplishment, and that'll be really interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep checking in with you on that and okay. how that goes. Um, now, I have also because I see such a a large caseload of cats. I have looked at some things with a large number of cases that go against the grain of what is common knowledge. Uh, there was a condition, uh, there's a d disease or a drug called benazapril. Mm -hmm. Side effects, don't give benazapril, can cause kidney disease. Well, that's slightly true. So we did a study on the safety of benazapril, 510 cases. Okay. I mean, my papers for the last 10, 15 years have had three-digit ends, which is almost unheard of in, in small animal medicine and feline in particular. Uh, we, I manage diabetic cats differently than what is taught in school. It's called the loose control approach. And we wrote a paper on that. It has the largest N of any paper published on diabetes in the cat and the longest duration, which was 11 years. Most of them, we follow them for three months or six months. We followed them for 11 years. And so, you know, I, I challenged that. And that's catching on slowly, but it's coming. Um, let's see, what else? Did you know when you were in college challenging the people telling you that you're crazy for doing this, that it was just going to kind of follow your whole career where you're going to continue to challenge people to say, listen. Yeah, I've, I've sort of been fighting an uphill battle the whole time and it's okay. You know, are I, you can I tell thought, you totally are inspired by it. Oh, like yeah. you almost consider it like a, a personal that's challenge. A, right, like it's okay. I'll show you like you can think that if you want, but I'm going to show you. That's so. right. I'm going to show you with data that you're wrong. <laughs> so I've done that several times. Okay. I okay. love that. I love that. All right. So we've talked about we've talked about your journey. We've talked about your hardest challenge and, and your biggest rewards. So then here's my here's my next question. Out of all of this experience that you've had, out of all of these incredible things that you've done, if you were going to give two pieces of advice to a veterinarian to have a long Dr. Norsey, a long, healthy career in vet med, not one that that so many struggle with today, what would your two pieces of advice be? All right. First one would be when you first get out of school, your first job is probably the most important two years of your career. And if you get off on the wrong foot, you'll regret being a veterinarian at some point. So your first job needs to be with a practice where they have a serious mentorship program. Now, that's sort of the buzzword right now. The students are all reading about these jobs. We mentor our new employees. Okay, well, depends on how you define mentor. 
Okay, you know, mentor says, one mentor says, well, you just watch what I do and, and do the same thing. That's mentoring. That's not the way I define mentoring. Mm -mm. Okay, so my, uh, my mentorship program has several steps. First of all, I have a, a procedure manual. So I try to sign my new, uh, my new employees, new graduates, to a contract in January or February to come to work in May. So as soon as they sign a contract, they get the procedure manual. And, I, and so they hopefully spend a great deal of time the last few months in school looking at the way we do things. Okay. Then they graduate and they come here first six weeks. They don't see patients on their own. They stay with me. It's like they're another extern. And I introduce them to clients and, and I show them here's the way we do things. Here's our equipment. Here's the way you use this piece of equipment. Here's our procedures. All right. That's for six weeks. And then they start as soon as they get here on what I call kitty college. Okay. Two nights a week, we go to dinner, talk about what we've done that day. And then we spend an hour to two hours talking about some subject. Now, most of these are lectures that I've given through the years. And so we started off uh, talking about chronic kidney disease. And then we talk about hyperthyroidism. And then we talk about cardiac disease. Uh, and so I have a, a, a real curriculum that, that I use at, with complete with handouts. And so by three months of kitty college, I've got somebody who's really indoctrinated on how to be a cat doctor. And before I did this, I always, I would tell uh, new graduates, I'm going to give you a two year contract. The first year you don't even make your, your salary. You're almost a liability to me, but you're supposed to be learning. The second year I get a return on my investment because now you're worth something. Well, now with Kitty College, the first three months and I've got you a year, year and a half down the road. And it dawned on me if I spend three months with a student moving them along that fast, not only does it benefit her, benefits me because now I've got an employee who's a really productive, happy employee in three months. And so the first thing you want to do is look for a situation where there's serious mentoring that occurs. Doc, I've got to just hover over this for a second because I, I talk about this a lot too. And I knew, I mean, I had to, I had to have known when we first met by the connection we had then that it was only going to just deepen and get to new levels because everything that you say, everything you just said about finding a new job, I say that all the time. Look for, don't look, go, don't go based off money, go based off of who you're going to learn from. And then to listen to you talk about actually implementing training, taking the time to train and to work with them so that they're not being thrown to the wolves. That to me is one of the biggest pieces missing from what's happening in clinics right now is that we're not slowing down and taking time to train because mm -hmm. it's hard to do those things and run your, your daily mm -hmm. practice and all of that. And I get it, but it's almost necessary for you to have a happy, healthy practice and, and you're a living example of that with your mentor program as far as hiring new 
veterinarians. I, I love that that was your first piece of advice. Yeah, and and I wrote an article for Veterinary Practice News that okay. published six months ago on your first job, what to look for and what to avoid. Mm. And mentoring was number one on my list. And I made the point to say, don't make that decision based on the money. Don't make it on location. You know, you say, well, I want to go to Florida because that's where I want to live. Well, the first most practitioners don't stay with their first job more than two years. Make those first two years about learning and setting the standards for your career. And then after two years, move to Florida or wherever you want to live. That's fair. But don't make that first decision. Just I'm going to take a job so mm -hmm. I can live in Florida. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I love Florida. I mean, I'm not knocking Florida. Everybody well, and, and, Florida. and sometimes, you know, they go based off of we all know that veterinarians come out with a lot of debt. Oh, and yeah. that has to be in their mind chipped away at right from the beginning, which I understand because that is a big burden. It is. Um, and I think sometimes they go and they they hear of situations where they could pay that off quicker early in schooling. And it's easy to get caught up in that yeah. when really it's like, just please take a deep breath and recenter yourself and, and really try and make a decision based off of what you're going to learn. Think about the long term. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So what's your second piece of advice? My second advice is, <clears throat> this is what I learned very early from my first mentor in the cat practice was there's lots of diseases we don't understand. There's diseases we don't even know what they are. And, and uh, phenol leukemia virus was not even discovered for all practical purposes when I started. Um, feline AIDS virus was discovered in 1985. Um, we didn't know almost anything about hyperthyroidism in the early days. <laughs> One of the reasons that attracted me to cats is that my foundation in cardiology was not very good in school, probably mostly my fault. But the, the mantra of the day was cats don't get heart disease. So you don't need to know about a bunch of cardiology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that was totally wrong. That is in fact wrong. But it was just shows you, uh, I mean, I refer to my early years in feline practice as the dark ages of feline medicine because there was so little that we understood. We saw cats that had urethra obstructions two or three times a week. Mm. Nobody was doing a perineal urethrostomy. Right. So those cats would obstruct again mm. and again and again. Mm -hmm. And we saw cats that have been obstructed eight or nine or ten times. Oh, gosh. And while I was there, the guy that I worked with, my mentor and I, worked out a way to do urethrostomy. The last year that I was there, I averaged doing two a week mm. because we had this backlog of all these cats that had multiple obstructions. And now they were free of that. And the really the funny thing was that after we'd done it a few times and then worked out the kinks, we said, we need to publish this. So one of our technicians was a big into photography. And so he said, let's get a cat, do the surgery. We'll get our technician to take pictures. and We'll write uh, an article about it. 
Well, in that era, there was no digital pictures. You know, you made pictures and you sent the slides into the lab and got prints if you wanted them. The day we got the slides back, the AVMA journal came out with our technique published by someone else. Oh, wow. And so we didn't get any credit for it, but we were doing it. And that was another one of those early ex experiences that just worked out. Um, the third piece of advice I'd give you, I know you only asked for two, is I, look for open third. doors and walk through those open doors. For example, <clears throat> I diagnosed feline leukemia virus infection in a lady's cat. Her husband was an MD, hematologist. She goes home and tells her husband, uh, our cat has uh, leukemia and it's caused by a virus. And he was like, oh, that's ridiculous. There's no virus that causes leukemia in any species. And so next thing you know, I'm on the phone with him. And the next thing I know, I'm referring him to Bill Hardy, who developed the test. And it wasn't long until he really was enlightened. It's like, wow, this is really good stuff. And so we developed this friendship. And he said, you know, I'll be happy to teach you some hematology. And so on my day off, I would go to the university hospital in Seattle to his lab and I learned about reading blood smears. I learned about reading bone marrow smears. I mean, it was an amazing door of opportunity that opened. And so there've been lots of those through my career. And so when a door of opportunity opens, walk through it. I, I have a person that I follow, a podcaster and, and self-help guru, essentially. And he talks a lot about about it's a lot about the people you know and I've believed that for a long time and so I lean heavily on learning from the people I know because I'm always a smarter person afterwards and to take in lessons that other people have already learned there's something really cool about that and so I I I think that's a perfect piece of advice yeah well Dr. Norsworthy this conversation has been amazing I'm a I'm not I'm definitely not going to end this interview without taking my few seconds to show my deep gratitude for you for not only taking the time to talk to me today, but for your dedication to this profession, for your willingness to give up so much of your life to teach all of these different students, veterinarians, vet techs, give speeches, write papers. None of that was easy. And I know that. And the massive impact that you have made on a profession that I love so deeply will live on well beyond any years any of us spend on this earth. And I think that is a, a huge thing. And I'm forever grateful for it. Being a deep fan of veterinary medicine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. A thousand times. Oh, that was great. All right. Okay. Now, actually, I would like.